Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. Our expert guests for this episode, number seven, on medical and surgical emergencies in pregnancy are Dr. Shirley Lee and Dr. Dominic Shelton. Dr. Shirley Lee is an emergency physician and Director of Education at the Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto. She's an Associate Professor at the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. She has served in a number of capacities at the undergraduate, postgraduate, and CME level at the University of Toronto. Dr. Dominic Shelton is an Emergency Physician at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre and Women's College Hospital in Toronto. He is a former Director of the Emergency Department at Women's College Hospital as an Assistant Professor at the University of Toronto. I don't know about you, but when I see a pregnant patient who presents to the ED looking really sick or has some non-obstetrical complaint, my worry meter goes through the ceiling. Why? Because pregnancy changes everything. Their presenting symptoms can be misleading or confused with normal pregnancy. Their vital signs are normally altered. The physical exam can often be more difficult. Their lab values are harder to interpret. You need a fellowship degree in radiology to figure out the best imaging algorithms. Half of the drugs we use in the ED cannot be used in pregnancy. The outcomes of medical and surgical emergencies are worse in pregnant patients. Our surgical and medical consultants are also scared of them. And of course, we're managing two patients, where one of which, the fetus, can give us no history and we can't do a physical. To top it off, there is scanty evidence for anything we do in pregnant patients since it would be unethical to enroll pregnant patients in experimental studies. But don't fret. Today on Emergency Medicine Cases, we have with us Dr. Shirley Lee, a world-renowned leader in medical education, and Dr. Dominic Shelton, who has given some amazing talks on pregnancy-related emergencies. They will help take our worry meter down to a nice, comfortable place where we will have the confidence managing pregnant patients who present to the ED with a medical or surgical emergency. Welcome, Dr. Lee and Dr. Shelton. Thank Thank you. you. All right, let's jump right into the first case. We have a 27-year-old G1PO woman, 34 weeks pregnant, who presents via ambulance to your emergency department at 4 a.m. with a chief complaint of severe shortness of breath, which woke her up out of sleep at 3 a.m. She admits to being a bit short of breath over the past few weeks, with no orthopnea or PND until that evening. She has had some ankle swelling and a dry cough over the same time period. She also reports a constant, sharp, left-sided, 6 out of 10 chest pain, which radiates into her back with no exacerbating or relieving factors, except perhaps taking a deep breath. She denies fever, hemoptysis, calf pain, or swelling. Her pregnancy has been uneventful with good prenatal care and a normal 18-week ultrasound. She is otherwise healthy and a non-smoker. The only medication she is taking is a prenatal vitamin. On physical exam, she appears to be in moderate respiratory distress. The vital signs are a heart rate of 120, blood pressure of 90 over 60, respiratory rate of 34, O2sat of 90% on 4 liters by nasal prongs, and a temperature of 37.8. So, Dr. Lee, what are you thinking about at this, at this point in terms of your differential, and what features of the history would be leaning you towards one or, or the other? 
the top of the list would be polyembolus in a 34-week previously well pregnant lady who presents with acute shortness of breath that's severe in, in onset. That would be at the top of the list, especially looking at her baseline tachycardia. Her rest rate is 34, and certainly in pregnancy we know the rest rate is elevated, uh, but this is elevated more than we'd like to see. And certainly in O2 sat of 90%, um, the spiping on four threes by nasal prong is very, very concerning in this patient. So I would be going to primary respiratory cause for her um, short, acute shortness of breath with PE being at the top of the list. But certainly there are other things we think about in the differential as well, just to keep a broad perspective. With regards to other lung pathology, since respiratory is at the top of my list, uh, pneumothorax definitely comes up. Um, although it would be unusual to suddenly have a pneumothorax with this presentation, unless there's a history of a motor vehicle accident or some kind of trauma. Um, to fit the story. I suppose if she was someone with Marfan's, it's a possibility as well. They get a more likely a chance of pneumothorax, but again, a little bit unusual. Um, and then again, looking at cardiac causes, that would be next on our list, I think, beyond the respiratory causes. One of the respiratory causes I forgot to mention is obviously infection. But again, we don't have a story for that where she's had a recent URTI. When we look at the cardiac differential diagnosis, Things that are common, more common probably in pregnancy that we worry about are things like cardiomyopathy. Then there's the, the regular things that we usually think about even the non-pregnant patient for someone showing up with acute shortness of breath. Arrhythmia of some kind, uh, dissection, myocardial infarction, disease due to mitral stenosis or severe mitral regurg. Infection, pneumonia, although she didn't have any preceding URI symptoms in light of the, um, you know, the low-grade fever, um, I, I would put it up there in, in terms of the differential. Some of the disease processes that pregnant patients are more at risk for that we should be thinking about, you mentioned are cardiomyopathy. Pregnant patients are actually at risk for MI. They're at risk for dissection. Uh, so these are some of the things that we need to think about that we normally don't think about in patients that age. And in terms of the vital signs, Dr. Shelton, could you just go over generally how we should be interpreting vital signs in pregnant patients, what, what the normals usually are? The heart rate is elevated in pregnancy and usually in the range of about 10 to 15 beats uh, per minute uh, as a resting uh, heart rate. So having said that, you know, 120 is still above what I would expect to consider to be in the normal range for a pregnant patient. So in terms of uh, respiratory rate, as Dr. Lee mentioned, due to the hormonal effects of pregnancy, in particular progesterone, there is an increase in uh, respiratory rate. What's considered to be normal in terms of that range? I mean, I would accept anywhere from Above 24, I would consider it to be abnormal respiratory rate. Blood pressure, because of the increased volume of distribution, there is a, and the, as a result, decreased peripheral vascular resistance, there is a decrease, corresponding decrease in blood pressure during pregnancy. So once you start getting below 80 systolic, I mean, that would be a red flag. So 90 over 60, I think, is well within a normal range for a pregnant woman. The blood pressure does reach a nadir in the, in the second trimester. The other thing to, keep in, in to con take into consideration is the fact that pregnancy can result in supine hypotension syndrome, and that's due to the gravid uterus causing an actual physical obstruction by resting on the IVC in the aorta. So that decreases venous return, 
and then as a result decreases cardiac output. So an entity that you really see in the definitely in the third trimester, again, it requires the patient to be supine for this to occur and, and readily managed by putting her into the left lateral decubitus position. Pregnant women have a lesser degree of reserve in terms of their functional residual capacity, and so um, there's less room to play with in terms of their O2 sat dropping, um, and so that makes this even more of a red flag, the fact that she's hypoxic. Mm-hmm. So this patient was placed in a left lateral decubitus position. She was put on a cardiac monitor, an IV was started, and oxygen was given by mask. On further examination, uh, she was alert and speaking full, clear sentences. Her chest exam revealed decreased air entry to the bases, but otherwise clear lung fields. Her heart sounds were normal, with a pan-systolic murmur heard best on the left lower sternal border. Her JVP was elevated at 5 centimeters above the sternal angle. Her abdomen was gravid and non-tender. She had no calf swelling or tenderness, but did have 1 plus pedal edema bilaterally. A handheld Doppler revealed a fetal heart rate of 165, and a 12-lead ECG showed sinus tachycardia with flip T's in the anterior leads. Dr. Lee, how... How do these physical exam findings, the decreased air entry to the bases with the clear lung fields and a pansystolic murmur, raised JVD and pedal edema, how does this help to narrow your differential? Well, just looking at those signs of physical examination, I think the ones that would be most concerning would be the elevated JVD. But looking at the one plus pedal edema of the legs, uh, you know, if it was a day like today where it's blistering hot, uh, everyone's got edema. So one plus pedal edema wouldn't alarm me unless it was generalized anarsarca where you're seeing edema of the thighs, edema of the abdomen. I'd often look at the back to see if they have edema right in the, in the base of their spine. Um, so that would also be a concern if it was a generalized anarsarca picture that you were seeing. Um, the pansystolic murmur, very common to hear murmurs in pregnancy with a hyperdynamic state and increased volume. Uh, so again, wouldn't know really what to make of that. I would probably try to lay um, one of my ultrasounds to take a look at the heart mm-hmm. to look at that more closely. Yeah, with the murmur, like you say, in pregnancy, you can often hear a murmur like this. I know that murmurs are really difficult to listen to in the emergency department, but I just want to put a little plug in for giving that little extra effort to try and figure out what kind of murmur they have. Cause I really think, and especially in this case, it can help with your differential if it's really, if you're talking about like right heart strain, secondary to large, pulmonary embolus, I think that's probably the main thing you think of, um, you know, where we, we can see on the ECG uh, signs of right heart strain or a new right bundle branch block. So if there's backflow to the right side of heart, certainly I guess that could lead to a murmur of regurgitation. In addition, you know, you mentioned mitral stenosis uh, mm-hmm. being in the differential too. So with mitral stenosis, you would get a diastolic murmur. Uh, with mitral regurge or with tricuspid regurge, you would get uh, a systolic murmur, which you could find in a massive PE. Uh, and I guess the other thing to consider is with, in an aortic dissection, you can get uh, an aortic regurgitation murmur. A new aortic regurgitation murmur would be very significant for the yes. possibility but if of it's a... an aortic dissection, that's really bad news. And in terms of the ECG, Dr. Lee, you were mentioning that 
with a pulmonary embolism, you might find signs of right heart strain. Could you just go through first? Th- this patient had flip T's in the anterior leads. This is the kind of ECG finding that we see all the time, and it's often blown off as nonspecific ST changes. Can you just give us an idea of some of the diagnoses that you should consider when you see flip T's in the anterior leads? The main one, uh, I think that we always have to consider, and certainly in the right clinical context, is, uh, is ischemia strain, so uh, LV hypertrophy causing a strain pattern. Um, and if the T wave abnormalities fit that pattern of a strain, so that would be the other thing in the, uh, in the differential. The re- effects of right heart strain, again, from a massive uh, pulmonary embolism, can cause uh, T wave abnormalities. So right bundle branch block, whether it be complete or incomplete. Your classic textbook, S1, Q1, T3 uh, abnormality. Not common, but throw it out there since we're talking about ECG abnormalities. Toxins related, you can get uh, T-wave abnormalities, DIG being one of them. Right, I I mean, you can certainly include electrolyte abnormalities would affect the T-waves as well. But all that being said, though, I think the important take-home point is that if you have pulmonary embolus at the top of your list, especially if a patient presents like this, the most common ECG finding you're going to find is sinus tachycardia, usually at a rate of around 120. This is dead on the money. As soon as I see an ECG like this at the rate of that, I'm thinking at the top of my list. It's great if you also see a right bundle branch or right heart strain or the flip T's or S1Q3, T3. You know, they, they sort of put it down as the third most common thing you see with PE in general, not necessarily people in pregnancy. Um, but sinus tachycardia is the number one ECG finding you're going to find in someone with a PE. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be at 110. It's usually around, I'd say easily, usually in that 120 range. If you're hitting over 140, 150, then you have to think about other causes that be, could be causing that, that rate. I agree. Uh, sinus tachycardia, and let's not forget, totally normal. Normal meaning not even tachycardia um, that you can get in a, in a PE finding um, too. There is one ECG finding that's highly specific for PE, and that is flip T's in the anterior leads as well as the inferior leads. You have to remember, though, that if you have ischemic changes in the lateral leads as well as the anterior and inferior, then that can be consistent with ischemia. So again, isolated flip T's in the anterior and inferior leads is highly specific for pulmonary embolism. The other diagnosis to consider in someone who presents with chest pain and flip T's in the anterior leads is aortic dissection. Although aortic dissection doesn't have any particular ECG findings, flip T's in the anterior leads are the most common abnormality on the ECG in aortic dissection. But the take-home point being that you don't want to brush it off just because you see the flip T's. You should be going, oh, that's interesting, and not taking any fruit in that, but then to start thinking something else is going on here, and to broaden differential just saying that it's you know, just not flip T's for physiological reasons because the patient's pregnant. I think that's the take-home point we're trying to make here. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so just to review the ECG findings for PE... Sinus tachycardia, flip T's in the anterior leads, and, and the inferior leads, or just the anterior leads alone. Evidence of right heart strain, right bundle branch block, S1Q3T3. 
In this case, the chest x-ray comes back and it shows a small left pleural effusion and an increased cardiothoracic ratio. Dr. Lee, with a chest x-ray that shows an increased cardiothoracic ratio, is this normal in pregnancy? And what do you, what do, you do with this sort of finding in someone with pregnant, who is pregnant? Well, first off, this is probably a portable chest x-ray because there's no way this patient would be leaving my resuscitation bay. So immediately right off the bat, because it is portable, you're going to have an increased cardiothoracic ratio just by virtue of how you're doing the imaging. With regards to pregnancy itself, certainly you can get an increase in the cardiac to thoracic ratio um, just due to the increased volume. How significant it, can it be? I've heard numbers of 1 versus 1.6. In terms of PE, what are the mo- more common findings in PE on the chest x-ray? So again, not a sensitive test for diagnosing PE. So I would say the most common finding would be a normal chest X-ray <laughs> right. uh, for uh, for a PE. But pleural effusion is certainly something that you that, that you can see. You know, all the other things that we learned about during our medical school and residency. I mean, I, I, I hesitate to even bring them up because I've never seen them in terms of a Hampton's hump and. Uh, yeah. And the uh, Western mark sign, uh, so let's leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, a take-home point here really is that most of the time you have a normal chest x-ray in someone who has a PE. So uh, normal chest x-ray is the most common, and then you might get an elevated hemidiaphragm. You may get pleural effusion. Absolutely. And you might do the chest x-ray for other reasons, right? We talked about our differential diagnosis. I, I think it would still behoove uh, the eMERGE physician to do a chest x-ray in this case and not be afraid of doing one because the patient is pregnant because they are 34 weeks. And we'll talk more about radiation doses a little later on. Um, but because of the other differentials, looking for fluid, looking for pneumonia, um, looking for pneumothorax, looking at the CT ratio, I think you would have to do a chest x-ray. Okay, let's do a quick review so far. Pregnant patient presenting with shortness of breath and or chest pain. What are the diagnoses we need to think of? Of course, PE is at the top of our differential. Pregnancy-induced cardiomyopathy, which we had mentioned in a prior episode on acute heart failure, is something you need to think of in the pregnant patient and in the postpartum patient. Pregnant patients are at risk for MI and dissection, so don't think just because they're young that they can't have an MI or or a dissection. Uh, Pneumothorax, mitral stenosis is the most common valvular abnormality in pregnancy, and that can present with shortness of breath. And then all the other usual things that can cause shortness of breath, like pneumonia. In terms of the vital signs, the heart rate is increased by approximately 10 to 15 beats per minute. The blood pressure normally has a nadir in the second trimester, And remember, when you have a pregnant patient who has low blood pressure, it can be because of the supine hypotension syndrome. So putting them in the left lateral decubitus position might correct that low blood pressure immediately. In terms of the physical exam findings, a massive PE can cause JVD. So if you see JVD with clear lung fields, that's one of the diagnoses you want to think of. I just want to also go through a quick differential diagnosis of JVD with clear lung fields. The differential diagnosis of JVD with clear lung fields is massive PE, tension pneumothorax, RV infarct, cardiac tamponade, and SVC syndrome. Again, the differential diagnosis for JVD with clear lung fields, massive PE, tension pneumothorax, RV infarct, SVC syndrome, 
and cardiac tamponade. Going over the different murmurs you can hear in a pregnant patient, murmurs are very common because of their hyperdynamic state. Again, mitral stenosis is the most common valvular abnormality, so you should listen for a diastolic murmur. Remember that in aortic dissection, you can dissect into the aortic valve, causing an aortic regurgitation murmur, which will also be a diastolic murmur. In terms of systolic murmurs, tricuspid regurgitation from a massive PE will cause a systolic murmur. The ECG findings for PE are tachycardia, rightward axis deviation, S1Q3T3, T-wave inversion in the anterior leads or the anterior and inferior leads without the lateral leads, and incomplete right bundle branch block. But remember that actually the most common ECG you'll see is a normal ECG, and the most common chest x-ray you'll see is a normal chest x-ray. In pregnant patients, they will usually have an increased cardiothoracic ratio on the chest x-ray, so that would be normal, but you also need to be thinking about pregnancy-induced cardiomyopathy in patients with an increased cardiothoracic ratio. Let's move on now to the ever-so-controversial use of D-dimer. Would you order a D-dimer in this patient? The outright answer um, that I would give would be no. I wouldn't order a D-dimer in this patient. So it's important to realize that the utility of D-dimer is in the low-risk patient. So you have to have a pre-test probability um, to be low to even be ordering it. So right off the bat, the fact that she's pregnant takes her out of a low-risk category, and so she would at least be a moderate, uh, if not uh, high risk. So that's reason enough not to order it. One just has to really look at what happens to D-dimer in pregnancy, just healthy pregnant patients. For the most part, D-dimer is normal within early stages of the pregnancy, and it gradually increases as the gestational age increases. So you're more likely to get negative D-dimers in the first trimester. Once you get into second trimester, a significant percentage are positive. Once you get into third trimester, almost 100% are positive. The use as a negative predictive value has only been validated in non-pregnant patients. So those studies have never been done to validate the use of D-dimers in pregnant patients. I should say specifically with regards to diagnosing PE. There has been some validation for DVT, but let's face it, most of us don't order D-dimers when we're considering DVT in a patient, whether it be pregnant or non-pregnant, because the the definitive test is easy to do, non-invasive. So it's really, its main utility is in the rule-out PE patients. Each hospital site has to also realize that they need to look into the sensitivity and specificity of their D-dimer tests, uh, because certainly there is variability between the different brands, um, and you'd want to be pretty sure that you're comfortable and happy enough with the sensitivity of your specific D-dimer test at your hospital site, because some are not as good as others. So in terms of D-dimer in the first trimester, about 50% of pregnant patients will have a normal D-dimer. The D-dimer increases through the trimesters, so that in the third trimester, close to zero will have a normal D-dimer. The D-dimer then gradually decreases again and returns to normal at about four to six weeks postpartum. So this is important to remember that in the early postpartum period, 
the D-dimer you would expect to be elevated as well and that it only gets back to normal after about four to six weeks. Now the D-dimer is useful for low-risk non-pregnant patients but pregnancy does automatically put the patient at moderate risk thereby negating the usefulness of the D-dimer in this context. Remember that the three elements of Virchow's triad, venous stasis, vascular damage, and hypercoagulability, are all present during pregnancy and the postpartum period. Some would argue that having a negative D-dimer has a pretty good negative predictive value in pregnancy for PE, because you'd normally expect it to be high, so if it's negative, that should make you even more sure that it's not a PE. There is one recent cohort study showing a high negative predictive value of a normal D-dimer for PE in pregnancy, but this hasn't been validated in large randomized control trials. So I think the bottom line is forget about D-dimers in pregnancy. So now that we've got our blood tests, we've got our ECG, chest x-ray, all the basics, what is the next test that you would do? We've established that thromboembolic disease is up there in our differential, if not the provisional diagnosis. So we want a test in order to rule that out. Talking about either a CT or a CT pulmonary angio or a VQ. But in this unique patient population of pregnant women, um, if we can avoid radiation exposure uh, to the fetus, then that would be preferable. And so the algorithm that is usually undertaken is to start with bilateral leg dopplers. And the rationale for that, the significant percentage of patients that have PEs have DVTs. And so if you're clinically suspecting a PE, then you look for the source in the legs. And if it's positive, then you can stop there. You can infer that she has a, a PE. But if it is negative, then you need to go further. If it's an unstable patient, I personally would be inclined not to delay a definitive diagnosis with doing bilateral leg dopplers in such a patient. I would go for a more definitive test. So just to let our listeners know that the algorithm is stable, pregnant patient, rule out PE, bilateral leg dopplers, but unstable patient, you go for a more, the more definitive test. And so I think in, in this uh, sick patient, uh, I'd be inclined to go for a more definitive test. I think the other important thing to consider with DVTs in pregnant women is that again, evidence has shown that a significant number of pregnant women with DVTs have pelvic DVTs. Pelvic being uh, meaning the iliac veins. And when you order a, a leg Doppler ultrasound, the sonographer is usually not looking at the iliac veins because they're, they're, technically it, it's more difficult to visualize. And so if you consider that in pregnant women, that that's an area that you want to look at, I think it's, it either requires you to specifically ask the radiologist and sonographer to look in that area, but also then just keeping in mind that if you get a negative leg Doppler ultrasound in a patient that depending on your pretest probability, you haven't completely ruled it out if you have not visualized the iliac veins. So reviewing Doppler ultrasound legs in patients who are pregnant, suspected for PE, 
70% of patients with a proven PE do have a proximal DVT, so it makes sense to start a PE workup with a Doppler ultrasound in the stable patient. If the Doppler ultrasound is positive for a DVT in a pregnant patient that you suspect has a PE, then a presumptive diagnosis of PE can be made and no further testing is required. Interestingly, about 85% of DVTs in pregnant patients are on the left side due to anatomical reasons. And as Dr. Shelton was explaining, isolated pelvic DVTs are much more common in pregnancy and will be missed on ultrasound Doppler legs. So that's one thing to remember. There was actually an interesting study in the Annals of Internal Medicine last year out of Women's College in Toronto, where Dr. Shelton used to be chief, looking at which historical and physical exam findings were the most predictive of DVT in pregnancy. And they found that there were three variables, one being symptoms in the left leg, cap circumference difference of more than two centimeters, and being in the first trimester when they presented. If they had all three of these features, then that was highly predictive of a DVT in the pregnant patient. Knowing that 70% of pregnant patients with a PE will have a DVT, this study may help us with our pretest probability. In the following discussion, we talk about definitive imaging for PE in the pregnant patient. So at this point, most of us would pull the trigger on definitive imaging of the chest, as you were mentioning, to rule out PE. Uh, there's a lot of controversy over which imaging modality is the best choice in this context. While CT gives a lower radiation dose than VQ scan to the fetus, CT is more likely to cause breast cancer in the mother than a VQ scan is. In patients who have pre-existing lung disease, a VQ is often less helpful, whereas most pregnant patients have otherwise normal lungs, and so you'd expect that a VQ might be more accurate in pregnant patients. I've also heard that a CT is actually less accurate for diagnosing PE in pregnant patients than in non-pregnant patients. So this is all very confusing. In terms of your usual algorithm, you do the Doppler, if that's negative and you want to go on to a more definitive test, what test should that be and what are the pros and cons of each one? Well, I can tell you in my institution it would probably be a CT. We do a modified CT that is only 16 sections, so they do less cuts through it. They also lower the radiation dose. So that the radiation dose usually to the fetus from a 16-section coordinary CT scanner, that's the latest advanced scanner, which are better at picking up smaller PEs than they used to be, um, is really definitely better than the VQ scan. Certainly our radiologists prefer it with regards to what they can see and pick up with regards to making the right diagnosis. When you look at the PyoPed 2 study, their investigators really recommend, 70% of them recommended VQ still, uh, and 30% recommended CT angiography. But again, that's 2006, and now we're in 2010. And even since then, I, things have changed. Dr. Shelton, you want to comment on that? or? Yeah, I think, the as you mentioned, there's a lot of controversy about CT, yeah. polymer angio versus VQ to rule P in pregnant women. I think it depends on who you speak to. I mean, if, mm-hmm. uh, and from my experience, if you speak to radiologists, the vast majority of them will recommend CT. Um, you've already outlined some of the, uh, the, the differences, but just to reiterate them, when it comes to ionizing radiation doses alone, it has clearly been established that there are higher amounts of ionizing radiation delivered with VQ scan compared to CT polymer angio. 
Now that's radiation dosage. The difference between them varies depending on the trimester. Uh, so there's greater difference in the first trimester and there's a less of a difference between uh, radiation dosage between the two tests in the third trimester. And the important thing to realize too is that in both tests, the levels are well below the threshold level that has been identified for teratogenicity in, in pregnant women and so teratogenicity of, of the fetus. So it, it, it's well below that safety margin of five rads. So a CT is about two or three rads, a single CT. Uh, actually, just even one rad, they'll say now. Um, even just one rad. Yeah, and then, and so five rads would be sort of the lower limit of right. what could be teratogenic. Yeah, there's a lot of papers out there, and they'll say that significant risk is unlikely when the fetus is exposed to less than... 10 rads or 10,000 millirads, which is equivalent to 10,000 chest x-rays or 10, roughly 10 CT chests. So just to put a little bit of perspective on that. And those numbers are changing too as the scanners get better and they get better at, at the amount of radiation that they're exposing people to. But the VQ usually being less than 55 millirads. Okay, so again, to give you perspective, we're, we're talking about radiation. The average fetus gets uh, an average dose of 50 to 100 millirads during the whole pregnancy just from ultrasounds. And, and imaging going on there. So again, we have to put it all in perspective that the biggest harm that's gonna to happen to the patient is if you miss the PE. And diagnostic imaging is probably gonna be dependent on your institution again with the comfort level of your radiologist or nuclear medicine people in doing the right imaging for PE, but that they're both pretty good with regards to results. Although I guess we are not totally clear in which is the best right. for gold standard. Yeah, and so again, these numbers that, that are being out there, they, you're right, they, they are changing, they're evolving as yeah. the technology improves. It should also be mentioned that with VQ scan, you can, you can actually lower the amount of radiation by altering the technique of, of doing the VQ scan. And so what the, the practice that's undertaken is to use a half dose for the perfusion scan and... Uh, if that's normal, then you stop there. You don't go any further. If it's abnormal, then you go on to doing the ventilation component of the, uh, of the study. So even with that reduced radiation level, it, it's still higher than CT polymer angio. My biggest concern with ordering a VQ scan on uh, rule out PE in a pregnant woman is what if it comes back indeterminate? You haven't ruled out PE with an indeterminate VQ scan, and the algorithms say you then go on to doing a CT. So then you end up doing both, yeah. which is then more radiation you could argue for your patient. Then the other issue, of the, which was mentioned, is just the downside of the radiation exposure from uh, CT pulmonary angio to, to the breast and, and the long term risk where that's concerned, and particularly in pregnant women because there's proliferating breast tissue. And so it's unknown as to how significant that is. But just empirically, you would think that it's significant. Mm -hmm. One other thing which I'm always hesitant to bring up is the carcinogenic risk in, to the offspring. Very controversial, highly controversial in the literature. In my mind, it's a sure way to get a woman to refuse to have... Uh, definitive imaging to uh, rule out PE. I think once you start mentioning the fact that her child uh, has an increased risk of developing cancer, and in, in particular, the more common cancers would be the leukemias, 
but it's part of informed consent. Uh, and so the, the numbers that are out there are that one rat increases the risk of malignancy, childhood malignancy, in particular leukemias, by uh, 1.5 to 2 times above baseline. We have to think about the radiation risk for the mother, particularly for breast cancer. We need to think about the radiation risk we know is below any teratogenic risk for the fetus, but uh, may increase the risk of cancer uh, in the fetus when they're a child. So these are all things that I guess we need to consider. But the bottom line is, though, that if a patient is in front of you and you think they have a PE and this is a life-threatening diagnosis, then that risk far outweighs the minuscule risk we're talking about of leukemia in the child and of breast cancer of the, of the mother. Okay, so this patient did go for a CT angiogram, and they were found to have a massive PE. Now that you've clinched the diagnosis of PE, how would you then treat the pregnant patient with a PE? She would be treated the same way that a non-pregnant patient uh, would be treated immediately, and that is with uh, low molecular weight heparin. Important to say off the bat that you know Coumadin we know is uh, teratogenic to the uh, embryo and fetus, and so for the remainder of her pregnancy, she will remain on low molecular weight heparin. Studies have clearly showed that there is a decrease morbidity and mortality with use of low molecular weight heparin. And that the only time I think that I would consider using traditional unfractionated heparin instead of low, low molecular weight heparin in these patients is a highly unstable patient, and you're considering that she may go on to have thrombolysis, so that's something that um, one may consider. If this is someone that you think is going to be Sort of del- yeah, imminent uh, delivery. You want to be able to turn off the uh, heparin. Of course, if there's other sort of underlying medical conditions that, that put her at increased risk of bleeding, like if she, let's say, were you know recent surgery or postpartum, you know, recent severe infection, then you probably want to put on unfractionated heparin too. Okay, this patient was started on anoxaparin, and internal medicine and obstetrics were consulted, and you go off to see a different patient. Suddenly you hear an overhead call, doctor to recess now. And you go to recess and your patient is now unresponsive with no pulse. Uh, The monitor shows VTAC. So besides the usual ACLS protocols, how would you manage this 34-week pregnant patient who's now in cardiac arrest? Let's just talk a bit about how ACLS would be different for the pregnant patient and whether you'd be considering an emergency C-section, whether you'd be considering thrombolysis. Let's start with how your ACLS protocol would change in a pregnant patient. Just to go back though to ACLS sort of protocol guidelines though, if this patient had witnessed VTAC, we still have to go back to the basics, which is first line in the chain of survival is gonna be early defibrillation. You bring back the mother's heart, then everything has been better with the fetus. So everything aside, uh, the first thing I would probably be doing is cranking up my uh, biphasic defibrillator to get this patient out of VTAC. So remember, electrical yeah. cardioversion is safe for the fetus, and that's important for our listeners to, to know because that's, again, something that will hinder them from doing the right resuscitation. 
people naturally may want to shy away from drugs because she's pregnant. But, uh, but I would give this patient, if the shocking has not converted her, then I would also give her epi. I know vasopressors, uh, there's concern about uh, shutting down the uteroprocental uh, flow because uh, it's a potent vasoconstrictor, but, but I would still give it uh, in this clinical situation. But CPR needs to be maximized. That would probably be above my A and B at this point. Uh, only because I want to maximize blood flow to the fetus as well as to the mother. In this situation, obviously, the fetus needs to be delivered. Every minute that that mother is in arrest is no flow to the fetus and certainly will be imminent fetal demise. You want to start thinking at the outset about doing an emergency cesarean section. The greatest survival for the fetus is if they are delivered within the first five minutes, but mm -hmm. that does not mean that you wait until the clock ticks to five minutes before you then even consider evacuating right. the uterus. And mm -hmm. I would say that if by about three to four minutes, if nothing's happening, then you'd be in the process of, of evacuating the, uh, the fetus. Now, still taking a step back and, and to answer, you know, what, what else do we do differently in uh, pregnant women who undergo arrest? The issue of positioning is, is important in these patients. And, you know, if they already had a precarious hemodynamics and then they have a gravid uterus sitting on their IVC in the aorta, uh, that may be enough to just tip them over. And so you want to shift that, that uh, uterus. Now, obviously putting them in the left lateral decubitus position is not the most practical position to have them in, uh, in an arrest situation. So there's, um, there's a device that has been developed, but my understanding is not even available. It's just Cardiff Wedge. Actually, it is available. It is still available? Yeah. Uh, I was speaking to an anesthetist a couple months ago at, um, from Queens, and um, they, they do have it, but I have not yet to see it used on a pregnant patient. I think just to roll up some towels and put them on under her right side so she's tilted to the left i think it's probably the most yeah. practical thing and tilt it probably 20 30 degrees mm -hmm. uh, and if you're not able to somehow do that readily you can ask someone to just mm -hmm. manually move the gravid uterus to the sort of left and superior so you're in a between a rock and a hard place with regards to whether or not thrombolysis would be would be the best thing mm -hmm. to resuscitate this mother from her massive pe mm -hmm. you know versus bleeding out Right. right. Yeah. And the and, rest of the fetus. Yeah, and there clearly have been case studies of these scenarios where thrombolysis has been undertaken with with success, but yeah. some may argue that it's futile. But I, I think that you pull out all stops at, at this point. In this case, the one of the emerge docs actually started doing the C section because the OB team wasn't there yet. You talked about there's there's this four-minute rule where you really should be starting to cut by about four minutes after a cardiac arrest of the mother. Could you just give us a quick run-through of the actual technique of what you would do? There's no concern about cosmetic appearance here. So you're not doing it the traditional way in which uh, obstetricians do, uh, do cesarean section. So we're doing a vertical midline incision. So going from the epigastrium right down to the pubic symphysis, getting into the abdominal cavity. And once you're in the abdominal cavity, you're visualizing the gravid uterus. And uh, again, you're making a vertical incision in the uterus, unlike the usual horizontal incision that's made uh, in an elective cesarean section. So starting at the fundus, and this is where you have to be careful so as not to injure the fetus. 
So once you make that initial incision, you're able to get two fingers under the myometrium and in the cavity, and then you can lift up the the uterine muscle and then make that incision with your scissors, frankly, instead of a scalpel, uh, and then just make that incision all the way down vertically. And then once you deliver the fetus, clamp the cord, and just making sure that you're holding the baby uh, below the uh, mother and then cut the umbilical cord. Dr. Lee, in terms of the airway, we haven't really touched on that yet. Uh, What are some of the considerations in the pregnant patient who crashes in terms of the airway management? Well, there's no doubt definitely in this kind of patient that you want to intubate them as quick as possible because pregnant patients have increased oxygen demand both for themselves as well as their fetus. But of course, they're at increased risk though, majorly of uh, vomiting. And you do want to make sure that you've got uh, cricoid pressure being applied immediately because they're at very high risk of, of, uh, of vomiting their gastric contents. They can be more difficult to intubate because of the increased intradominal pressure from the pregnancy as well. Well, this patient uh, actually ended up doing really well, both the mother and the fetus. They were intubated and cardioverted and thrombolized, and a emergency C-section was finished off by the obstetrician, and mom and baby ended up doing well. So, so just to uh, sort of comment on that, I mean, one may think, you know, the mother has miraculously recovered. So just evacuation of the uterus alone mm-hmm. has been shown to be beneficial to the outcome of the mother. So you're not only saving the baby's life, but there's also benefit to the mother by evacuating the uterus. The, the physiologic demands on the mother by having this gravid uterus. So you've got a pregnant patient in the third trimester with a huge PE who has just had a VTAC cardiac arrest. What do you do? First, you shock, give epinatropine as per the usual ACLS protocols. Remember that shocking is okay in pregnancy. At the same time, you want to page OB in ICU. You want to manually displace the uterus and put some towel rolls under the right side of the patient. Meanwhile, you want to provide good CPR as this is key to placental blood flow. In addition, you want to pour in normal saline full open. The patient needs to be intubated quickly because pregnant patients have increased O2 consumption. While intubating, remember that good cricoid pressure is necessary to help reduce the chance of aspiration. The C-section should be started within four minutes or as soon as the initial rounds of shocks and medications haven't brought back maternal circulation. Remember that extraction of the fetus may not only save the fetus, but it actually improves maternal hemodynamics. Also remember that CPR should be continued throughout the procedure of the C-section. How do you do the C-section? You use a vertical incision to cut down to the uterus, then an initial vertical incision at the fundus with a scalpel, followed by a vertical cut with scissors, taking care to hold the uterine wall away from the baby with your other hand. In terms of thrombolysis, there is some good evidence for its use in the non-pregnant patients with massive PE, and there is some evidence that it may be useful in patients with submassive PE based on bedside echo findings but there are only case reports of its use in pregnancy. So this will be up to your judgment, weighing the risks of bleeding in the patient that has just delivered a baby against the mortality benefit from the PE. The other thing to remember is that vasopressors are generally avoided in pregnancy 
because of placental vasoconstriction. And for this month's quote of the month from French author Marcel Proust, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new lands, but seeing with new eyes. Let's move on to our second case. This is a 30-year-old G2P1 who is 10 weeks pregnant by dates, presents to your emergency department with a 24-hour history of lower abdominal pain. The onset of the pain was gradual, it's constant, and it's aching in quality. It has worsened to a severity of 8 out of 10 at present. There is no radiation of the pain. Associated symptoms include nausea and decreased appetite, but no vomiting, and a low-grade fever. She reports no vaginal bleeding or discharge and normal bowel movements. She has had some urinary frequency. Her past medical history and past surgical history are unremarkable. She takes prenatal vitamins only. On exam, she appears well, but in pain. Her blood pressure is 100 on 60, heart rate is 96, respiratory rate is 20, O2 sat 98%, and a temperature of 38.0. She has no CVA tenderness, and her abdominal exam reveals tenderness in the right lower quadrant with guarding, but no rebound. Her pelvic exam reveals no blood or discharge, no cervical motion tenderness, a gravid uterus consistent with dates, and some right adnexal tenderness, but no palpable mass. So, Dr. Lee, what would be at the top of your differential in this patient? I know there's many, many, many causes of abdominal pain in this sort of context, but what would be at the top of your differential? What would you be most worried about? Well, there's no doubt we see a lot of patients in the first trimester to present with abdominal pain. Specifically, this patient that presents with a fever and right lower quadrant pain the differential still has to stay, stay quite broad. Typically when I see a patient like this with a fever, certainly we always think when we think of right lower quadrant, we're thinking appendicitis, but that's probably not as common as some other things that I usually do see in the first trimester in a patient with abdo pain and a fever. Urinary tract infections are very common and they can sort of localize. They're not always super pubic in these patients. Renal colics is in the differential as well. Pelvic inflammatory disease is actually very high on the list. We see a lot of patients who have no cervical motion tenderness. They're actually often not febrile, who just present with abdominal pain the first trimester, and they end up being the ID. So those are things I think of right off the bat. Other common things that we can think about in this patient population, certainly they could have an ovarian cyst that has ruptured or torn, but usually they're not febrile. It's my understanding that you actually decrease your risk of PID when you're pregnant. It's felt that essentially once you get beyond the first trimester that the uterus becomes, <laughs> for lack of a better word, a sort of closed unit and that the gravid uterus is protective against anything ascending up the uterus and then going out into the tubes. So the bottom line is that it's not common in pregnancy. If it is going to occur, it tends to be in the first trimester. Okay, so yeah. decreased risk, but not no risk. It still Absolutely. has to be on your differential. It's definitely high up on the differential in that first trimester. In this case, we know the patient is pregnant, but what about the patients who present with abdominal pain who we don't know if they're pregnant or not? Uh, we've all heard the saying, all women of childbearing age are pregnant until proven otherwise. Let's say we didn't know this patient was pregnant. What does the evidence say about how accurate we are at predicting pregnancy just based on the history 
in other words, can we rely on a history of regular periods with an LMP occurring within the previous month to rule out pregnancy? The evidence clearly indicates that we are poor at being able to predict pregnancy just based on our clinical assessment. And, and that includes direct line of questioning to the patient to ask them, is there any possibility of being pregnant? In other words, are they sexually active? And, and getting responses to that would reassure you that no, there's no possibility, but sure enough, the woman still ends up being pregnant. And that particularly tends to occur in the younger women, uh, particularly uh, teenagers. So really the, the take-home message is that any woman of childbearing age should be considered to be pregnant until proven otherwise. And, and so particularly when they're presenting with abdominal pain that you need to assess for pregnancy i.e. a beta ACG as part of your assessment and, and, and workup. So even in the patient that says, I'm absolutely 100% sure that I'm not pregnant, if they present with belly pain, you yeah. order your beta, you eh? know, that's that's great because they do say that all the time, that I'm absolutely yeah. sure I'm not pregnant. And that can be due to a lot of different factors. The other people that are in the room that may not be part of that pregnancy you know, there's a lot of good literature in the States that show basically that the immaculate conception, where there's absolutely no chance they're pregnant, is somewhere between the 7 to 15% range. Uh, that's high enough for me that I will order a serum beta HCG. Again, depending on which hospital site you work at, you know, whether you use urines versus serum, the patients are notoriously inaccurate with regards to their periods. Just as we ask good questions when we ask about chest pain with regards to the nature and the quality of the pain, the same thing happens with last menstrual period. I never take it with a grain of salt when the patient says last menstrual period was X date. I actually ask them, is this, are you usually regular with your periods or irregular? And asking about the time frames of their periods, because uh, then you find out all sorts of things that actually that that wasn't their last period. So I'm always suspicious in someone who says their last period was about five weeks ago, and they're slightly irregular. I'm thinking about other things that could be going on, like ectopics. And I think the other thing to consider, too, is that even when a woman is presenting with symptoms that may be suggestive of GI or, or uh, GU pathology, that, again, evidence have shown a significant percentage of those women still turn out to be pregnant. So, and the pregnancy being directly related to their presentation. So they're coming in with mainly a, a GI, GU complaint, but it's due to their pregnancy. Now, I'm not saying that every woman that comes in with vomiting and diarrhea that you need to do a beta HCG on, but I think that our listeners need to be aware of the fact that there are atypical presentations of things like ectopic pregnancy that can present as gastroenteritis. The clinical diagnosis of appendicitis in the pregnant patient is really challenging. There's a few reasons for this. The GI symptoms of appendicitis, such as anorexia, nausea, and vomiting, mimic those of pregnancy, particularly in the first trimester, making those kinds of symptoms pretty nonspecific. On the physical exam, peritoneal signs are less often present, or if they're present, they're usually delayed because gradual stretching of the abdomen leads to peritoneal desensitization. In the following discussion, we're also going to talk about the myth that the appendix is located outside of the right lower quadrant in patients who are pregnant. Our traditional teaching has been that the gravid uterus displaces intra-abdominal contents and you can find the appendix in the right upper quadrant. And so a pregnant woman can present with higher 
right side of abdominal pain and, and it be uh, due to appendicitis. Having said that, uh, a study was done in looking at a group of women that presented with appendicitis and still showed that the majority, the vast majority of these women presented with right lower quadrant pain, abdominal pain, and had right lower quadrant tenderness. And so that applies to all three trimesters. So even in the third trimester, they're still more likely to present with right lower quadrant pain and have right lower quadrant tenderness. My understanding is that about 15% of the general population who present with appendicitis will have an atypical location of their appendicitis, and that that rate of 15% is about the same in, in pregnancy. Patients. Yes. All right. Well, in this case, the patient was given IV morphine and Gravol, as well as a bolus of normal saline. The blood work and urine were sent, and the beta came back at 22,000. The white blood cell count at 14,000, and the urine showed 5 to 10 white blood cells per high-powered field with no bacteria and negative nitrates. So Dr. Lee, what are the limitations of the lab tests in the diagnosis of appendicitis? They often have an elevated white blood cell count, so it's really not helpful for you when you see a white blood cell count of 14 to 16. It's helpful if you see that there's a neutrophil left shift, or if it's even higher, like more in the 18, 20, 24 range, then we're getting interested in that this could be a true infectious cause. How can we interpret the results of the urine in this context? So this is a really common finding for the urine to show 5 to 10 white blood cells per high power field. Seeing no bacteria, negative nitrites, again, makes you put UTI or pyelonephritis a lot lower on your list. But the fact that there's some contamination in the urine, this urine needs to be sent off for further assessment. So I would definitely still send the urine off for a CNS because you get surprises all the time. But again, this wouldn't uh, really contribute much to helping us with the diagnosis of why this patient has right lower quadrant pain and fever. Mm-hmm. So the 5 to 10 white blood cells could be just contamination. Absolutely. Or in appendicitis, you can certainly you get... You can. Actually, that's true. You can get um, a bit of an elevated white blood cell count in the urine due to inflammation uh, related to appendicitis, but I wouldn't hang my hat on that as one of my diagnostic tools for diagnosing appendicitis in the pregnant patient. And at this point, there's some people who use the Alvarado score, the Alvarado appendicitis score, to help to decide on the pretest probability and deciding whether or not to image. Let me just remind listeners what the Alvarado score is, and then we can talk about the Alvarado score in pregnancy. So the Alvarado score, there's a total of eight points. You can get one point for migration of pain to the right lower quadrant, one point for anorexia, one point for nausea or vomiting, two points for right lower quadrant tenderness, one point for rebound, one point for fever, two points for a white blood cell count over 10,000, and one point for a left shift. Is the Alvarado score useful at all in pregnancy? Well, it hasn't been validated in the pregnant population, so you have to take that green cell that's not in the same group. Is it useful as far as helping to diagnose appendicitis? I, to be quite frank, I don't think this score really helps me with my management. I see a lot of cases of appendicitis and know about the atypical presentations and know about the history and sort of the timeline that they present, you know, starting off with. So I don't think this is particularly useful in the pregnant patient. I agree. I mean, scores um, and rules are something that you can resort to, I think, sometimes just to please others in terms of the reason why we need to do the imaging or the reason why this patient needs to be consulted on. 
So this patient ends up going for an ultrasound abdopelvis to rule out appendicitis and ovarian torsion. It comes back, and like many, many reports we get for ultrasound rule out appendicitis, it states that the appendix was not visualized, that there were normal ovaries with normal flow, and they did find an IUP corresponding to 10 weeks gestational age with a fetal heart rate of 140 and trace-free fluid. Dr. Lee, what are the limitations of ultrasound in diagnosing appendicitis in pregnant patients? Well, you know, ultrasound is one of those funny things where it's very dependent on the quality of your technicians at your site. And different sites will vary with regards to how good their techs are. In general, ultrasound would be my first line, definitely. It's also our first line in the non-pregnant patient who's slim, who's female as well. It's good up to about 35 weeks, and then it's kind of hard after that to see the appendix that's hidden underneath the uterus. Because one of the key tests for when you're looking for appendicitis is that the technician actually has to actually press on the abdomen to try to compress the appendix. If the appendix is inflamed, it, won't, it doesn't compress. So that is one of the ways they diagnose it. And because of the inability to do that when they're over 35 weeks because of size, that's probably one of the limitations of ultrasound in trying to diagnose appendicitis in, in the pregnant patient. Before we leave ultrasound, I just did want to mention that although it definitely is the first line in this context, it often does contribute to the delay in the diagnosis, which can translate to increased morbidity and mortality. I remember the old days when you diagnosed appendicitis and you had a great history and clinical exam. That was classic. The patient went to the OR for a diagnostic lab. And uh, that doesn't happen anymore. In the last, definitely in the last eight years, I have not yet to see an appendicitis that did not go up before it was imaged. And that's partially due to technology and how our you know, training is now for our residents because, face it, in females with abdo pain, sometimes it's not appendicitis. In fact, often it's not. And they want to make sure you've got the right diagnosis before they take the patient up to the OR. The fact that it's a female and then add to this, it's a pregnant woman. I think everyone would agree that she needs at least an ultrasound in order to rule out other pathologies. So even though there may be a delay, it may delay her ultimately going to the OR, that ultrasound still does need to be done, I would Absolutely. say, in, in yeah. these patients. And so, you know, one could make a case for expediting it prioritize this patient to try to get an early ultrasound because you're right this is all part of what contributes to increase uh, morbidity and mortality often what i do with patients who i suspect have appendicitis depending on the surgeon on call i'll call the surgeon right off the bat and i'll say look i'm sending this patient for an ultrasound or i'm sending this patient for a ct i think they have appendicitis i just want you to know because most likely i'm going to call you back in a in an hour this patient will have the definitive diagnosis and you can take them to the OR. At least that gives them the head up. And then if they have other cases in the OR, they can maybe get things prepped. If you happen to get a, an experienced general surgeon, who may even use that opportunity to say, you know, if you're that certain, then maybe I'll come and see them, lay my hands on them and bypass the imaging, you know, in the rare circumstance that that mm -hmm. may occur. In this case, the patient had their ultrasound, and you go back and examine the patient, and now the patient's vital signs have changed. Their blood pressure is 110 on 80. Their heart rate is now 110. Respiratory rate's 22, and their temperature is 39.5. So what would your next move be? 
you can go straight to, as we just mentioned, consult a surgeon, get them to come and see the patient and <clears throat> make the decision if they would like to bring this patient to the OR without any definitive imaging. So that's a definite option. The other would be to consult obstetrics gynecology. Now, what benefit is there to consulting OB-GYN? Well, sometimes you're doing that for the benefit of the surgeon because they want to have a comfort level that there's nothing obstetric or gynecologic causing this clinical presentation. So you may be doing it for their comfort level. And then the other option is now the definitive imaging. And so the two options are CT abdopelvis or MRI of the abdopelvis. So we come back to the issue of, of radiation, of ionizing radiation. And of course you have to consider radiation exposure to the fetus, to the mom, and balance that with the risk of not imaging her, not imaging her and not taking her directly to the OR. Well, either you just observe her in the eMERGE or if she were to be admitted and observed. So you have to balance it. And, and, and the balance is knowing the increased risk of perforated appendix in pregnant women and the sequelae. And those sequelae are preterm labor, premature delivery, even as far as stillbirth. If I were to have a patient like this who had a non-diagnostic ultrasound that I was pretty sure was appendicitis and I did my workup for everything else, if it was 9 to 5 during the week, I do have a good enough relationship, I think, that I could call out my MRI department. And we have actually been doing some MR for appendicitis at our site and not necessarily pregnant patients. This may be something to be considered uh, in especially this group because of the radiation uh, involved and that MR is actually quite good at picking up appendicitis. Not readily available in most centers, so I mentioned it with brain salt because but it may be the coming wave that we do see in these hard cases where the ultrasound is not diagnostic. And is there any risk of the MRI, particularly is there risk with gadolinium? I've heard some wishy-washy statements yeah. from guidelines yeah. saying that there's no evidence that it is harmful, but there's also no evidence that it's safe, so no one really knows. So gadolinium, being the contrast that's used with MR, does cross a placenta. And so animal studies have shown that there is uh, increased risk to the, uh, to the fetus. Now, the issue is, does that tra translate into humans? And there aren't those clear, there isn't that clear evidence that's out there to, to show that. But just extrapolating based on animal studies, it's reason enough that the general recommendations that are out there are to avoid its use, so avoid the use of gadolinium. And a motherhood statement like avoidance use on you know weight risk versus benefit. Basically, it's something that that one would not automatically use unless there is significant concern about the disease and the morbidity and mortality from the disease. And in appendicitis, a plain MRI has a very good sensitivity for appendicitis? So plain MRI is not bad. It's just like how we do non-contrast CTs for patients with increased creatinine. Um, certainly if the plain MRI showed an appendix that was larger than 7 millimeters, you've got your diagnosis, you can stop there. You don't need, oral, you don't need air contrast or gadolinium. Um, it's just when those cases where the appendix is 7 millimeters or less, or they're not sure just from the non-contrast that you would have to move on to do uh, imaging with contrast. Some of them will, now there are studies out where they do only 50% of the gallinium dose and have quite a good accuracy. And um, they're working on that. They're trimming it down smaller and smaller with regards to the dose to see what they can get away with to get really good results in imaging.
And when we're talking about contrast, switching over to CT again mm -hmm. for patients who aren't pregnant, who I'm ordering a CT to rule out appendicitis, I mean, my reading of the evidence is that plain CT is just at, has just as good sensitivity as CT with contrast for appendicitis. Now, I can understand in the 85-year-old who you're wondering about appendicitis and they, the radiologist wants to use contrast so that they can pick up other diagnoses. But in a young patient, I personally see no role for CT contrast to rule out appendicitis. Right. And what's your take on, so, on that? You know, my opinion is, having said that, they're the ones that are reading the scans, right? Not us. And if they want contrast... Uh, you know, oh yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. Yeah. I mean, they always win. Right. <laughs> yeah. If enough people talk about it, then it, it, yeah. maybe they'll change because the the evidence is there that, that the plain CT is just as good. I think my only take I'll say about that is that the studies that are showing that are done by staff radiologists who are technically better at reading CT abdomens. We've all been there where we've we've sent patients home and had to call back the next day that oh. Uh, there was a missed appendicitis from last night. So I always tell them that this is the preliminary reading whenever I give a radiology report to a patient, especially at nighttime, because of the risk of it being read wrong or incorrectly by an inexperienced uh, resident. The only point I think of the contrast that is helpful is sometimes when they see periappendiceal inflammation, it can certainly enhance that, or if it's just the tip that is inflamed. It's also helpful sometimes in those cases where the appendix is on the borderline of six to seven millimeters, and they're looking again for increased inflammation and tissue around the area, or is there actually fluid in there? CT contrast mm -hmm. in pregnancy, what if, is there any concern with that? And, and so, again, it's one of these situations where they have shown in sort of in vitro studies that there's... Uh, potential for harm to the baby in terms of hypothyroidism. But that's the extent. I mean, there's no teratogenic concern with uh, iodinated contrast for, for CT. And th those studies were done with high doses in that they were injected directly into the amniotic fluid as opposed to this is given intravenously. So a very small percentage of it ends up being, the, the fetus being, ends up being exposed to. So I think if there's reason to give contrast, it can be given. We touched upon that there is an increased rate of perforation and mortality for appendicitis in pregnant patients compared to non-pregnant patients. Do you have any numbers for that that you could give us? In appendicitis, non-perforated, the fetal loss rate is 5%. And so you then result in a situation of a perforated appendix that rate can increase in the neighborhood of about 30% in terms of fetal loss. So that's a significant increase. And so we come back to the point about you know, delay in making the diagnosis. Of course, delay is a significant factor in perforation. Right. And the maternal death rate with a ruptured appendix? Literature indicates that it's as high as 4%. Wow, that's impressive. So the maternal death rate is as high as 4% for a ruptured appendix in pregnancy and the fetal loss for a ruptured appendix is up to uh, as high as 30%. Yes. Okay, so again, time is of the essence here. We want to try and minimize all the delays for the diagnosis and to get them to the OR as soon as possible. So here's the summary for appendicitis in the pregnant patient. 
Appendicitis is the most common reason for non-obstetric surgery in pregnancy. The most common presenting symptom, just like in non-pregnant patients, is still right lower quadrant pain, despite older studies that state otherwise. A high white count may be due to normal pregnancy, but an increase in band cells is suggestive of infection. Physical signs and peritonitis may be delayed in pregnancy because of an enlarged uterus, and this delay in diagnosis is a common cause of morbidity and mortality. Unruptured appendectomy is associated with a fetal loss rate of about 5%, while ruptured appendicitis is associated with fetal loss rate of up to 25 or 30%, and a mortality in the mother of 4%. Therefore, imaging should not be delayed. Ultrasound is the initial imaging test of choice, but be aware that it does not pick up ruptured appendicitis very well, and that after 35 weeks gestation, it's much less useful because graded compression is not easily performed. While a CT is very unlikely to cause fetal malformations or death, the radiation does probably increase the chance of childhood cancer, so this needs to be weighed against the potential delays and misdiagnosis of appendicitis, which can potentially lead to fetal loss and maternal death. If you can get an MR instead of a CT, then do it. And remember, consult your surgeon early if you suspect appendicitis. Just in time You found me just in time Before you came my time Was running new In terms of the differential diagnosis, we mentioned PID and we mentioned pyelonephritis. In fact, pyelonephritis is the number one misdiagnosis for appendicitis in pregnant patients, probably because patients normally have urinary frequency when they're pregnant. And that in combination with some white cells in the urine that might go along with appendicitis, we get that confused with a UTI and we make that medical error of of going to the diagnosis of UTI without considering the appendicitis. So let's shift from appendicitis and talk about pyelonephritis, which is quite common in pregnancy. Can you just tell us your approach to the patient with the UTI, how we should be managing asymptomatic bacteria in a pregnant patient as opposed to a non-pregnant patient, and uh, what medications we should be using? It should be noted that uh, cystitis and asymptomatic bacteria occur with the same frequency in pregnancy and non-pregnant women. However, as a result of the hormonal and anatomic changes of pregnancy, the progression to a complicated UTI, i.e. pyelonephritis, is uh, increased in pregnant women. So as a result, these patients need to be treated, even though they may be asymptomatic. So there's different... Uh, approaches in the literature in terms of a single dose, three-day course, and a seven-day course. My approach in pregnancy is, whether it be asymptomatic bacteria or cystitis, I'm still going to be treating them for seven days. Uh, Some treat them for shorter courses. With regards to asymptomatic bacteria, remember the urine just has to show some white cells. You won't get nitrites in about 30% of UTIs because they're not nitrate-producing bacteria. So again, not to say, oh, it's just contaminated into Nora in your pregnant patient. It's very important that you do treat it. When you look at how long do we treat these people, probably the best that we can do at this time is looking at the Cochrane database. And I have to agree with Dr. Shelton that one day probably isn't enough Minimum is three days. In the pregnant patients, they tend to be even more cautious, and they say seven to ten days. Are they actually good with just three days? Maybe, maybe not. It depends, again, on 
the trimester of pregnancy that they're in, their previous history of UTIs, but no one would fault you for giving a pregnant patient a seven-day course. So in terms of antibiotics, all beta-lactams have been shown to be uh, safe in pregnancy. So penicillin uh, is shown to be safe. However, we all know that it has, uh, there's a high resistance rate to penicillin or E. coli, which is, I mean, it's still going to be E. coli being your predominant bacteria causing UTI in, in pregnant women. So I would never recommend it as being empiric treatment for a UTI in a pregnant woman. So this is once you get your culture and sensitivity back. Cephalosporins being the other safe and uh, very often uh, it's cephalexin. And it's important to realize too that uh, enterococci is not covered by yes. cephalosporins. Uh, Nitrofrantoin uh, being shown to be safe in, in pregnancy. There is some theoretical risk about inducing a hemolytic anemia in G6PD deficiency. And then trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. So when you break down this medication to its two components, trimethoprim is a folic acid antagonist, and so not recommended for use in the first trimester um, because it's been shown that during the first trimester it can result in either neural tube or cardiovascular defect. And the, the sulfamethoxazole component can actually persist in the neonatal circulation if it's given shortly before delivery, shortly before birth, and so there's some risk of carnitoris. So, but it's safe in the second trimester, but probably right. best just to avoid if you can't remember. Right. On yeah. a busy ship. In terms of just the go-to medication for your plain old UTI in a pregnant patient, My that would be... My first to be quite honest. Yeah, so first line yeah. would be nitrofurantoin, I agree, and second line would be uh, cephalosporin. Yeah, Keflex. Which patients need to be admitted with a urinary tract infection who are pregnant? Definitely pylos for sure, pyelonephritis. Yeah. But UTI in third trimester, that is the recommendations that they should be admitted because of the risk of preterm labor. But that being said, I have seen patients not admitted and discharged home because they don't want to come into hospital. Right. Yeah, I think yeah. from a practical standpoint, yeah. many of them are still managed as outpatients. But mm -hmm. um, you're right, it's the, the pylos, they need IV for antibiotics, sure. which for the most part, translates into admission. So any pregnant patient with pylo and any third trimester patient with, with a, a UTI. UTI even. Yeah, you really should consider at least get a co-consult. But we also know that when we treat patients with bacteria, that it actually takes at least another week or two before it's completely cleared up in the urine, before they should get the repeat urine sample because it'll still show bacteria in it, but then the body naturally clears it. You're right. So this is a patient population mm -hmm. that we need to do follow-up urine cultures on. So not in your routine, uncomplicated, simple UTI, i.e. non-pregnant, but in pregnant women, you need to have that follow-up uh, urine culture. And also just to, to make it clear to our listeners, the reason why we're so vigilant in treating UTI in pregnant women is because of the risk for complication to the fetus, and that being preterm labor and low birth weight. So we've talked about the treatment of asymptomatic bacteria and cystitis in pregnant patients. What about the management of the patient with pyelonephritis? We already mentioned that these patients all should be admitted and should have IV antibiotics. Correct. So the treatment options there are really either cephalosporin or ampingent. And so the cephalosporin of choice, most people would use ceftriaxone, but... 
Cephazolin is also an, an option. And then your traditional uh, Ampingent. There's some debate as to whether or not you should still give the traditional loading dose and then Q8 off gentamicin, or you can give the Q24H, five to seven milligrams per kilogram. So there's evidence to show that it is safe in use in, in pregnancy, but I think that's a comfort level that people uh, will have to have. But just to know that it, it both are both treatment regimens are used. To summarize UTI in the pregnant patient, even though the prevalence of cystitis and asymptomatic bacteria are similar in pregnant and non-pregnant patients, pregnant patients have more urinary stasis as a result of decreased ureter peristalsis, leading to a higher risk of pylo. It occurs more often in the third trimester when stasis and hydronephrosis are most evident. The risks of cystitis and pylo in pregnancy are preterm labor, low birth weight, and sepsis. Because up to 30% of women who have asymptomatic bacteria will develop pyelonephritis if untreated, treatment of bacteria is cost-effective and important. Asymptomatic bacteria should be treated with a minimum of a three-day course of antibiotics, and Dr. Lee and Shelton recommend a seven-day course. In terms of what antibiotics to use for asymptomatic bacteria and cystitis in pregnant patients, Penicillins and amoxicillin, while safe, have a very high resistance, so they probably shouldn't be your first choice. Nitrofurantoin and cephalexin are probably the best choices, remembering that cephalosporins are not effective against enterococcus, and that nitrofurantoin is not effective in pyelonephritis as it does not achieve adequate tissue penetration, and there is also a theoretical risk of fetal hemolytic anemia when the mother has G6PD deficiency. In terms of how to treat pyelonephritis, those patients should all be admitted, and you should even consider admitting patients who are in their third trimester with simple cystitis. The antibiotic choices for patients with pyelonephritis who are pregnant are either a third-generation cephalosporin, such as ceftriaxone, 1 to 2 grams Q24H, or a combination of a penicillin and aminoglycoside, such as ampicillin and gentamicin. Also, don't forget that a follow-up urine RNM and CNS should be done one to two weeks after therapy, as about one-third of these patients will have a recurrence. One of the other diagnoses that we haven't talked about in the differential of pregnant patient with abdominal pain and fever is septic abortion. This isn't something we see too often. Uh, so can you just paint us a picture of how septic abortion might present and the key points of management? So first of all, I should say septic abortion not being a common clinical presentation that we see. The type of scenario would be a young woman perhaps an unwanted pregnancy, having an illegal abortion. That, that's sort of the prototypical presentation. And so that's why we don't see it as commonly in developed countries. It's the uh, developing countries that uh, you're more likely to see it where abortions are illegal and where they're not as uh, readily accessible. And so people will resort to extreme measures to end a pregnancy. And so they present as a result, usually first trimester, abdominal pain, vaginal bleeding, plus or minus vaginal discharge, and of course fever. 
There was another presentation though, septic abortion. In fact, I just saw it on my last shift where a patient actually had a miscarriage diagnosed on ultrasound in the first trimester and was given um, methotrexate. She did not get proper follow-up and it was now five weeks after her initial treatment and there had been no follow-up done and she was still having some badge bleeding and she presented with a fever and abdominal pain and she was septic. So again, to think about that, because we're seeing a lot more patients in the first trimester who have miscarriages or fetal demise without complete evacuation, evacuation of their tissue, that are given misoprostol or methotrexate, that if they do come back, a lot of them come back with pain due to the miscarriage, but if they're coming back with a fever, that you have to think about that in your differential as well. That is one of the risks of a missed abortion being inadequately treated. And so I agree, when I have a missed abortion, I'm treating them medically with mesoprostol. It is my practice that they need a follow-up ultrasound to be done. So to ensure that there is complete evacuation of their uterus in terms of management. So these patients all clearly need antibiotics and they need evacuation of their uterus. And if they have, if it's a septic abortion, they need urgent evacuation of the uterus. This is not someone that you would treat medically in terms of the evacuation. You treat them with antibiotics medically, but they need an urgent evacuation, i.e. a DNC, mm-hmm. as opposed to someone with an endometritis post third trimester loss. They don't all need to go to the OR yeah. for a DNC. Those often can be settled with yeah. antibiotics. Well, that about wraps it up for this month's episode on emergency medicine cases. Thanks so much to Dr. Lee and Dr. Shelton for their words of wisdom. Please let me know your thoughts with regards to anything about emergencymedicinecases.com by emailing me at anton at emergencymedicinecases.com. If you'd like to comment about a particular episode, please use the comment section on the website. Until next time, take it easy.